Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Objective. And today is everybody's favorite day of the week, Philosophy Friday. And we're going to be talking more about Aristotle, his metaphysics, his epistemology, his philosophy of science. But don't be intimidated. I'm right there with you at level one. And we've got a philosopher in house. Please welcome back Jason Rhymes. Hi, great to be back with you. And uh, please, everyone, leave a like, send a super chat, and hit that join button to become a member of the channel. All right, let's jump right into this. Uh, we spoke about Aristotle's life a bit last week. We spoke about bits and, and pieces and aspects of his philosophy. Um, I guess uh, when it comes to his metaphysics, um, what, what do you think would be a good way to kind of start that conversation? Because I'm, I'm rarely at a loss for words, but I'm not even sure what to ask. Well, okay. Um, the first thing would be to, to understand, I suppose, what Aristotle is doing in his metaphysics and what is distinctive about it. And, um, uh, and, and for that, I think we need to talk about, um, uh, in, part, or in large part, about Plato, because um, in, in many ways, Aristotle, I mean, he studies with Plato, he's responding to Plato, um, and and so here's here's the situation. Um, since the early fifth century BCE, so the high four hundreds, um, there has been an interest among ancient Greek philosophers in being or um, being as such since Parmenides, um, and a number of. Uh, even before that, though, there was also an interest in natural philosophy. And, and Parmenides himself had interest in natural philosophy. These were not mutually exclusive, the kind of metaphysical interest and the physical interest. They, they went together. But from Parmenides on, there was a kind of sort of split, if you will, or, or felt tension between what people like Parmenides and his student Zeno and certain others thought it would require to really have being, what, what it would mean to have something really real, what it would mean to know it on the one hand. And what we seem to observe when we actually go and look at the world, they wanted to do that, they were interested in that and in seeing what they could see, but when they looked at a sort of world of change, it was puzzling to them how to reconcile it with their earliest metaphysical discoveries. So Parmenides famously says that what is, is, and what is not, is not necessarily. Um, is not, comma, necessarily, right? Um, so there is what is, that's all there is, or really it's literally existence exists, same thing. And there's no non-being, non-existence non doesn't exist. There's no such thing as not reality. And from this, he concludes that what is couldn't come from what is not, because there is no what is not. And if there were a what is not, there'd be nothing in it to produce a what is. Um, and in fact, that's no different from the argument that Aristotle will later use um, to argue that the universe is eternal, because what could be outside of being to produce it? Nothing. Um, and... And so this sort of leads to what we, what I call, I like to call it, this isn't commonly how it's referred to, but I think it should be, uh, Parmenides' law. 
this is just ex nihilo nihil fit. Nothing comes from nothing. So the idea is you start with what is is and what is not is not. From that, you derive that what is cannot come from what is not. And then it seems like, and that's great. Like that's the first major discovery in sort of metaphysics that, that inaugurates metaphysics. That's the axiom of existence. Um, but immediately it seems problematic for the study of natural, the natural world because all the time it seems like things come to be. And so for example, if I tan, the, the tan tone on, that develops on my skin came from what was not tan. So tan comes from, being tan came from not being tan. Or if you learn something, knowledge comes from non-knowledge. Being, being educated comes from not being educated. Being mature comes from not being mature. Everything that comes to be seems to come to be from not being. And, and then all those things, or at least most of those things seem to go back to not being again. So it seems like that being could never become not being because there's nowhere to go besides being. That seems refuted when things are destroyed and, and so on. And this is what sometimes Greek philosophers call the problem of change. And to be clear, it's not that change, it's that they didn't know how to reconcile the sort of metaphysical observation that something is always preserved and that reality is sort of reality on the one hand with the fact of change. So you get an atomistic theory, which tries to make sense of things in terms of certain things are destroyed, but there are underlying things that are, or, or, or there are certain principles and so, and so on. Now, Plato, not just for, for this reason, not just this metaphysical reason that the problem of change, but also for epistemological reasons, which you also see somewhat in Parmenides and Zeno, um, Plato thinks, look, you have, you need two things. You need, okay, non-being isn't, being is, absolutely. And in between is coming to be and passing away. And so for Plato, there is a dualistic metaphysics. There are two levels of reality. There's the really real, which he'll, he'll call being or, or to ontos on, what really, what isly is, what really is real. Um, and then, uh, uh, and then tagignomena, the things that come to be the things that are generated and pass away. The things that come to be and pass away, that's the, that, those are the things observed by our senses. Whereas being, things that really are what they are and always are what they are, that's only observed or, or grasped by the intellect or reason. So beauty is always beautiful. Beauty will never be ugly. Beauty did not become beautiful. Beauty will not cease to be beautiful. Beauty just is beautiful. And, and, and so that's timeless, eternal. And we can know that, that's stable knowledge. That won't change. Where, where's my car park? That could change, right? Um, I at best have opinions, not knowledge. So now that's the back, but that's the sort of metaphysics up to, through Plato. Now, Aristotle comes on the scene and wants to sort of do two, at least two or three things. First, um, or, or he ends up doing two or three things. First, he ends up reconceiving of how we talk about being. So that being is no longer incompatible with coming to be and passing away. He wants a notion of being that doesn't 
but, but just doesn't have a problem of change, right? He wants to reconcile a, uh, having something and then later not having it and, and, and reality. That's part of it. And the other part of it is, we've talked about before, that Plato um, epistemologically accounts for our ability to refer to many things by the same term, what we would call concepts, by certain beings, the forms, these timeless things. And so beauty is not something in the beautiful things. Beauty isn't something about beautiful things differentiated from non-beautiful things. Beauty is its own thing. And this, which we can have knowledge of through intellect and the sensible stuff we can just have opinions of, and that's not really beautiful. It partakes of beauty to some extent, not totally. All right, so Aristotle wants to do away with that theory of forms. He has an, a more empirical theory of knowledge where the sense, sense perception is actually gonna lead to our universal grasp of things. What is What makes this thing an X is part of it and in it, not in another world. Um, and so his metaphysics is accounting sort of for, for change. It's accounting for the different senses of being, and it's accounting for um, particular and universal. So um, it sounds like Plato was elevating ideas above, you know, concretes above what we perceive, basically the things that we sense with our senses, we perceive are they're temporary and and difficult to put a like eternal definition on even maybe whereas ideas like beautiful always means beautiful always will now aristotle sounds like he's trying to uh make the concrete world either primary or like just primary. he he's not um he's not yeah he's not going with plato's program uh, was aristotle did he have a view of ideas of concepts of abstractions that yeah. that were more subservient to the senses Yes, so, or second, uh, or posterior to that in, in certain senses. So the first thing is that Aristotle treats individual particular things, entities, like, like this book or something, as the primary sense of being, being in the most fundamental and, and simple sense. Being in the secondary sense, is, is sort of the essence of these things or the types of things, the universals that apply to these individuals. So man, horse, right? So the most primary thing is this guy, that horse. Then being a man, being a horse is secondary to that just because this man won't be this man anymore if he stops being a man. He'll still be this man. He'll still be a, what he is. He won't be destroyed if he stops being ignorant and learns something. But if he stops being a man, he's dead. He's, he doesn't exist anymore at least that him socrates doesn't exist anymore when he dies right um and and then there are there is being in half a dozen or more half a dozen to ten other senses so part of aristotle's technique in resolving this sort of problem of change it's not the only ingredient but a big part of it and of resolving the kind of confusions that the parmenideans and Plato and others had fallen into was by being there, was through developing a theory of meaning or, or of how we use terms or concepts where he emphasized the fact that many terms are used in different senses. 
Now, these senses are often related, but they're not the same. So um, being a doctor, so the same, so being a medical professional and medicine or something like that are not the same. Even medicine, the stuff you take versus medicine, the field that doctors study, don't mean exactly the same thing, but they're clearly related, right? And so if you say, there's medicine in me and it heals me, you know, or, or medicine heals me, that can mean different things depending on I'm a doctor and I treat myself or I'm not a doctor, but I took a pill or I'm not a doctor, I didn't take a pill, but I followed the doctor's orders, whatever it is, right? So Aristotle is very sensitive to this. And when it comes to being, the first thing Aristotle does, or one of the things he does, is he distinguishes these different senses of being. And the most primary sense is just to be a thing, an individual thing. And that those are the things that our senses directly give us. And, um, but there are also, you know, there's also qualities of a thing, right? Being pale, being smart, right? That, this thing is pale and it is smart, but it's, is pale and it is smart in a different way than it just is the, that guy. And also there are actions like I am speaking and I am speaking or I am silent in a different way than I am Jason. The am is different there. So qualities, actions, quantities. I am five nine, right? I am this much. I am that much. So he, he starts to distinguish these. So that's part of it. And when he distinguishes these, and these are, have come to be known as the categories, um, which is a Greek word, which basically means um, a label you throw. So it, originally, like to categorian is, is to, to agorian, you speak publicly, and then kat is down to like, you, you speak someone down in public. So it's a denunciation, or in other words, it's like, I'm saying you're an adulterer. I'm saying you're a traitor. So it comes, so it's sort of a label I put on you. And the categories come to be not just the labels, um, but in fact, the highest types of labels. So they are the ultimate sort of gen, gen, genera. So action, um, relation, quantity, substance, essence, or entity, essence, these are the most generic genera, the, the, the most broad types. And Aristotle is very clear that there is no, they, these are the kinds of beings or the senses of being, but there is no single sense of be. there is no being that all of those belong to as species. So like an action is not a quality, a quality is not an entity. And there isn't for Aristotle, there's no one thing that all these are that you could define that ties them together. But he thinks you can say that entity or what he calls primary substance, primary usia, first usia, that that, this particular thing here, Jason, right, Raka, that is the primary sense of being. And even though the other senses of being aren't types of that, it's not one of the types of a common sense of being with them. It is the primary sense and all the others are sub are secondary to it. They are dependent upon it in various ways. 
So you never have qualities floating around without a thing that they are the quality of. You never have universals without particulars and so on. Okay, now uh, the objectivist student in me wants to make this about, you know, Ayn Rand and comparing. So to Rand, all concepts are formed sort of volitionally, starting with the perception of the object and then building abstractions and abstractions from abstractions. And it sounds to me, uh, from what I can pick up, that Aristotle, he's doing that to a degree, but not entirely as much because he, he it sounds like he's still treating some abstractions like they're um, like they're separate from the object, like they exist on their own. Am I correct or 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 no? Okay, good. Well, so, let, let, let's clear his reputation. Not, Go ahead. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what you're 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 saying. So there are a couple of things. So first, mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure Rand's committed to the idea that first level concepts are volitional, not in a, in a really important way. Like at any rate, there's no point in telling a, a one and a half year old they're you, you ch parents correct them, but there's no point in saying like he's he's doing it wrong and he's doing it wrong willfully mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we mentioned we've talked about that before, but but in any case, um, no, Aristotle is. I don't think he's saying that there's something separate um, apart from particulars. I mean, that's he's the one who really lays this down. That first and foremost, there are individual things. There, the, the magnitudes of them is what quantity is. There's no magnitude apart from that. The, the uh, mathematics can study quantity apart or magnitude apart from them in the mind, but in reality, it's never separate. In reality, qualities are never separate from these. In reality, universals don't exist or, um, or subsist apart from individuals. So in, in that sense, no, there isn't something apart. Now, if you want to say, is he a moderate realist? Maybe. Um, Aristotle scholars go, uh, are hotly divided and always sort of have been on exactly how to understand um, essences and form in Aristotle. And we can, we can get to that. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say, since you brought up um, the objectivism thing, uh, I mentioned last week that I'm working on some comments on a, on a paper by Jim Lennox, which is about Aristotle and Ayn Rand on axioms, which is really also sort of about what they think metaphysics is about and what the axioms refer to. And um, one of the things I, I want to discuss in this paper is the fact, so Ayn Rand says in, in a couple places that, that the most important thing about Aristotle, so in some places she says the axioms, but in other places, she says the most important thing about Aristotle and the thing that most sets him apart from Plato is that he believes in a world of particulars, not of universals. So it's, he thinks it's the individual things of sense perception, that's what's really real. And abstraction builds up off of and upon that. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I mean, like, I think both are true that they have metaphysical axioms that are about the same things and say more or less same, the same things more or less. Um, Rand has have some more functions and she has a consciousness one that Aristotle really has. Um, they both think that substance is the primary sense of sort of being that other senses of being or entities as she would call it, uh, depend upon. But Aristotle puts it that there isn't a univocal sense of being. There's like no one sense of being that is 
that encompasses all the other senses. There's just being an entity, being a quantity, being a quality, but there isn't just being a being. But I'm fairly convinced that for Rand, there definitely is. So in part because, you know, she at various, at least if that's her view, at various times when asked about what's the scope of existence exists, she's clear it's not just entities that exist, right? It means anything that exists in any sense, right? And so that, that is to speak of existence in a generic sense of all that is. And, and, and she says, you know, the concept of existence retains only one fundamental fact among all other facts. What is that fundamental fact that it exists, right? And that's irreducible and it is applicable to everything, which means the same irreducible term and the same is applicable to everything. Same thing with identity. So what that means then is that in the same sense, this is, and this is, and this is in, in some fundamental sense. Now, there are slightly less fundamental senses in which this is so much versus this is thus and so, or this is doing this are different, different senses of it. But there is a deeper sense, or there is for Rand at least, a more fundamental sense that is what the old philosophers called univocal. That is a single meaning that encompasses all of those different categories. And that's a really interesting difference between the two of them. I think, I mean, I-, I, I Well, no, I understand. Is, is interesting what they call subjective or I know it's a bit of a side uh, sidebar, but uh, course, you know- It's relative. I don't know, I wouldn't call it maybe, yeah. well, maybe some, in some cases probably subjective. It's certainly, mm -hmm. it can be a matter of taste and things like that. But I think most of all, I would just say it's relative. So in interesting, something is interesting relative to someone's interests or lack okay. of. So, uh, so- so it, of course it's interesting to me, but mm -hmm. um, well, of course, and therefore to all of us. Well, uh, what yeah. um, just so I understand, what was Aristotle's view of um, like um, like uh, so to him, existence only covered actual physical concrete entities? Did he have a view of like what thoughts? No, 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 no. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, so no, no. I mean, so for Aristotle, quantity, quality, all these things are. Mm -hmm. They are senses of being, right? It, this is, when I say he is three years old, that's a quantity, but he is that, that that's real. It's not unreal. Um, and um, so it's all true. Um, and he even thinks that there are primary substances, individual beings that at least in one case are immaterial and imperceptible. So at least in the case of God, he thinks you have something that has form, that is an individual, so it's a particular, but it's not sensible. Why not? It's form without matter. It's a mind without a body. Um, and he thinks, it's, he thinks it's not obvious that there are any invisible or, or non-sensible or purely intelligible substances. He's gone to great lengths to completely demolish the idea that there are that there are the platonic ideas that they exist. He's furthermore added that mathematical objects, which other members of Plato's Academy said existed on their own. He said they exist in your mind, but not on their own in reality. And now in 
in book Lambda of the metaphysics, he's saying, okay, so, you know, it's, you can't, like the thing, the beings to take for granted are, are, are what we would call entities, sensible beings, like this body here. Um, what's much more controversial, what you actually have to prove is that there could be some other kind of thing that he thinks there's God, but he does offer his own proof of that. And he thinks he's shown that there must be such a being um, that is act, pure activity without any uh, unrealized capacity. So all of it's, it has no unrealized capacity, which is to say it cannot change. So I've mentioned that part of Aristotle's view about solving the problem of change is his theory of categories, right? Of different senses of being, because that sort of resolves things in terms. So I'm not going from existing in any sense to existing in no sense when I go from being pale to not being pale. Paleness and not paleness are qualities and those can come and go in a substance that exists through them. He has other parts of his solution as it were to change into his analysis of, na of nature. One of those is form and matter and the other is act what's usually translated actuality and potentiality. If I'm being really precise, I kind of prefer activity and capacity, but, um, but whatever, it's the same thing. So, um, and, and it ends up that in a very, very abstract sense, form and matter and activity and capacity are kind of the same thing, at least in a certain sense. So those two parts of the puzzle and his view of substance and the other categories, I would say those are the kind of three pillars of his, his ontology, his account of being that show his anti-Platonism, his what you might call sensible realism, you know, the world of individual objects is the main thing and his, uh, and his approach to change, that change is real, but it's not contradictory. It's not being and non-being together. So, yeah, and um, Aristotle's view of God is the most benign from the perspective of a scientist. Like, if you had to go with a God, it, this is the least um, uh, stupid version of God. If I, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I, I mentioned last week, right, that, um, that right, I put it last time, that the founding fathers, the members of the Enlightenment, often were, if they wouldn't go all the way to agnosticism or atheism, it, the kind of last step okay it was it was like from christianity to like unitarianism to unitarian deism to atheism um and that deism was the idea that god created the universe gave it the newtonian laws gave it this orderly you know made a beautiful clockwork thing and set it in motion with its rules uh benevolently carefully and then and then let it go and then let left people with reason to figure things out on their own, left things to move by gravity, etc. cetera. Um, Aristotle's God doesn't even do that. Aristotle's God didn't create the universe. Aristotle's God doesn't know about anything in the universe except itself. It wouldn't care either. For it to think about anything else would be for it to think about something less than itself. It would be stained by considering anything except itself. And why does the greatest and best thing think only itself? Because it would think about the best, greatest thing he thinks, which is itself. Um, and, and what is itself? It is that very activity of thinking of itself, thinking of itself. Um, 
And he also thinks that it, so it, it doesn't know about us. It would, it doesn't care about us. It didn't create anything. It doesn't do anything except constantly think about itself. It doesn't move anything. It is utterly unchanging. Now, it's inactivity. It's constantly in activity, but it never changes. For Plato, activity and change always go together. So he, he, that's why the forms have to be totally changeless because they can't be active without change. But Aristotle differentiates change from activity. Anyway. Um, okay. Uh, go ahead. Am I interrupting your thought? No, no. The last thing is just that... Um, he thinks that he thinks that so he, he believes he's proven i think he has proven in exactly the right set ways that the universe is eternal it's not going anywhere but he doesn't see how motion would be perpetual sort of in the universe um he doesn't have um newton's third law of motion for example like for aristotle one thing acts and, the, and another thing is affected but the thing that is affected doesn't equally oppositely act on the thing that acted, right? Like, so it's all one direction and some things are eternal, but some things are material. And it's sort of like, why wouldn't things just stop? And so he thinks there has to be something that keeps it all going. There has to be a kind of eternal source of motion. And if it's an internal source of motion, it can't be anything that changes because if it ever changed, it would stop being a source of motion and then it would never get started again. So it has to be an unmoved mover, an unchanging changer. Now, if it were to push everything constantly, if, in other words, if the world was a sphere and it was just a hand constantly doing it, you know, the inertia of the sphere would eventually tire out the hand, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so it can't be that it interacts with it. And so instead, his answer is the way that the unmoved mover, the way that this God, the mind that thinks of itself thinking of itself, the way that it does anything is not by interacting with it, but by other gods in the world, in the heavens, sort of like the stars, the planets, looking at it or thinking about it, thinking about how perfect it is and loving that and out of their love, trying to be like it. So it's, it, the, it inspires everything and that inspiration, which it doesn't have to interact with them to do. They can love it from afar, so to speak just like we love them, the stars from afar. We love them without them loving us back. They love the unmoved mover without it being moved by their love. And yet it moves them to, it inspires them just as the gods inspire us. So that's, that's his picture. And yeah, right. it's, it's very low key from a theological sense. Yeah, so I wanna talk about uh, science itself. Uh, let's first shout out some super chatters, Marilyn with $2, Daniel with $1.99. Jonathan Honig with 299 and then Jonathan Honig again with 299. Uh, Jonathan, I don't think it's working. Keep keep hitting send uh, and get I'm just joking. All right. Enric with five dollars asks on knowing reality. Does Aristotle consider an entity can be known in itself or just conceptualized through senses? So. I think Aristotle doesn't think things are conceptualized through the senses. Well, he doesn't use the term conceptualized, but he doesn't think, he thinks the senses ultimately are what lead to our grasping a universal, but it is not the senses themselves that grasp the universal. So he thinks first we have sense perception of primary substance, of individual things. Then for the smarter animals, they are able to recall 
certain sense perceptions and bring them back to the mind. That is the capacity of memory. Those that among those that have memory, some are able to kind of create webs of association, so to speak. You know, like when the bell, like the Pavlovian, when the bell rings, food is coming. Or, you know, master will pet me, right? Like that kind of thing. So one thing, they it's not just they have a memory, but they can kind of start to link things together. But they don't have language. They don't have universal. And then he thinks that through a process, the process is called induction, epigoge, performed by the faculty of noose, of intellect, of of reason, of the highest reason, right? That somehow from experience, we grasp something and it unites these things together and we get a hold of a universal, a universal term that, that unites these in a, in a unique way where they now can sort of function in a way they couldn't before. So the senses are providing all the material, um, more or less, uh, or at least the, the primary material, and then memory and then experience are, play, are building upon that. And then the process of induction or, or concept formation or grasping a universal performed by reason operates upon that to give us knowledge of a universal or of a first principle. Another question coming in hot. It's Eric with $5 asking, what error of method generates Aristotle's idea of pure actuality? What does the proper method have to say? So um, the, the method of the method by which Aristotle thinks there has to be, so actually, okay, there's a sense in which the method is, is very good or it's pretty reasonable at, at, at the very least. That is to say, he gets to it in this sense, right? Um, there's a, the universe exists and it's always existed and it always will exist. And it's, and um, parts of it are all, are all of it is in, in constant activity or, or pass or receiving activity passively. And some of it is moving or changing and, and some of it isn't. Some of it is in changeless activity like the perfect circular motions that the stars are going in. Um, he doesn't think of ro rotational acceleration he thinks of a circle as sort of a constant velocity rather than we think of it as a constant speed, but anyway. Um, so he, um, so, so of course there had to always be activity or there had to always be change because it, because if there weren't, let's suppose we lived in a world, there's this, um, in the sixth book in the Chronicles of Narnia, the magician's apprentice there, there's a part where they're, warping through different worlds. And there's sort of a world that's been destroyed, sort of, and in this world, nothing is moving. It's like, I always think of that world, like everything is stopped. It has always been stopped. Um, and then this is what Parmenides said, what would get it to stir up from that, right? And Aristotle has the same point. And if you say it did stir, why did it stir yesterday, not the day before or the day after? So the idea then is it can't be so the universe has always been, and, and we observe change. It can't be that there ever wasn't change. Okay, so, so now you say, okay, so there always had to be change. Fine, that's cool. Now, does, so Aristotle believes that, that there is a conservation of being. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing goes to nothing. 
does he think there's a conservation of momentum, let's say, the way, say, Newton did? No, because it doesn't look like there is to him. From his perspective, it looks like certain things kind of move to their natural place in the universe, and they get as close to the, where they're supposed to be going as they can. And then if they're impeded, they stop. So Earth tries to move towards the center, fire tries to move away from the center, and beyond fire, ether moves in perfect spheres in the, in the heavens. And ether is where it needs to be, and it will move in perfect circles forever. Um, the Earth stuff should eventually kind of get to where it can get and then stop, and the, likewise the fire. But we don't see that. We see meteors falling every so often. We see fire spurting out of the ground, and what keeps that going? And because it looks like things impose violent motion on things, and then they, they go, you know, so I, I pick up a softball, I throw it, it goes as far as I've pushed it to go, and then it drops, and it just sits there. And other than living things, which animate themselves, but only by getting life from the sun ultimately. And, and um, other than that, like nothing moves itself. Other things move it. And it doesn't seem like momentum or motion is conserved. So then the idea is, okay, what could conserve, if, it, if it's not conserved, what could there be? Um, and then the idea is, well, there has to be something that can be a source of motion. And now, okay, his next point is, if there was it has to be, this thing has to be eternal. Now here, there is a mistake in his reasoning. That is, why couldn't there be, or, or you could see it. So one argument is, why couldn't there be just a chain of non-eternal things that just pass on the responsibility for keeping motion going? So A, keeps the motion going until it can't, but in the process of perishing, it gives the job to B. And so as long as there's some, as long as someone's keeping all things going, it's fine. And part of the answer is, again, that would require a kind of conservation of change that he just doesn't see in the terrestrial world. And, um, and so you are going to need something that keeps it all rolling always. Now, that thing, he thinks, has to be changeless. Why? Because if you had something that could be changed, he thinks, and you had eternity, infinite time, which you do because the universe is never created or destroyed. Anything that, anything that is possible in the fullness of eternity must be actual. And not only actual, but actual an infinite number of times, right? Like it doesn't make sense to say this is possible, but in eternity, it never happened. So if you say this thing could change, it would have. And that means if it could have gone from being the engine of the universe to something else, it would have, and then, and so it has to, so it has to always be what it is and never something else. Well, that's just Aristotle's activity and potentiality or capacity, just our Aristotle's way of saying it's doing it. And potentiality is just Aristotle's way of saying what it could be, but isn't. So it can't be, there can't be any unrealized capacity because any unrealized capacity would be realized eventually, which would mean change, which would mean a deviation from the perfect motor, right? Now, a bunch of, I think there are questionable steps here, things you could point out, like, does that really follow this or that? But I have to say, I, having my, at least my current 
thought of this, and it's changed over the years, is that the biggest problem with, I mean, there are some other problems, like thinking that this has to be a mind and a disembodied mind. is, is That's totally unwarranted, I think, or very unwarranted. But thinking that, you know, like, hey, but like, we, you think, you know, I think that the laws of physics are always in operation, always. And like, if they sometimes weren't, and sometimes were, like, that wouldn't make any sense unless there was some law that was always in operation that governed how the lesser laws of physics changed, right? Like, so you believe, and I believe there is something that has to be perfectly active in that sense, right? So, um, or we have to believe in some kind of cycle which the parts balance itself to go around and around or something. But, um, but so, so I think that the biggest problem is, is what he thinks about the change and at least here on earth, the terrestrial, in the, among the four main elements or terrestrial elements and, and not having Newton's third law of uh, equal and opposite action. Um, and that's a hard thing because it really seems to him from his perspective and his way of thinking about causality, which is a good way of thinking about causality of things acting, that it seems like certain things do something and the thing they do it to is not doing the same thing back, right? Like the master is beating the slave. When the master beats the slave, the slave is just taking it. He's not doing something back to the master or, or something like that, right? Like it just, that's, uh, that's an incredible, when Newton comes up with this and, and to some extent people like Descartes and, um, and Galileo were setting, the, setting him up for that. They, were, they made an extraordinary leap of, of, of abstraction, a brilliant one but very abstract and, and, and you kind of do have to kind of move away from sort of how it, to some extent, how things look naturally and sort of say that you, let, let's put it this way, right? Like we tend to think that, you know, under laboratory conditions, perfect laboratory conditions, exactly the same thing will happen every time with when we have at least something without a soul, so to speak, without consciousness. Right, so you know the same thing would do exactly the same if we could account for everything. So, like, if you could account for so, the, if if everything were fixed, everything were fixed the same, and I dropped a piece of paper, right? Like, it would always fall on exactly the same path. But here's the thing: even in the most windless room with the most perfect, like, uniform heat we could create, that'll never happen. Um, Aristotle and Greeks in his age couldn't even dream of such an experiment. Every time they would drop a piece of papyrus or, or drop a feather, it would seem to take a totally different path. Now they know it's always gonna go down. They know that. They know it's always gonna go down slower than a lead ball. So it's not like there's no total lawfulness in the universe. It's just that the per exact path, no. So how do 17th century physicists get us on board with the, uh, this idea? because they do, it's, it's central to their project. They say, well, you have to abstract away a whole lot of factors. And they didn't, and it wasn't like people, the scholastics were like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll take that on faith. They proved it. So people like people like Bacon, um, uh, others like Boyle, they, were, they, they isolated the role of air resistance by making a vacuum. And then showing that like, if you put in a vacuum, a, a feather, and a lead ball will fall at exactly the same rate. Because they're like, I can prove to you air resistance for light things is doing this. 
right? Things with certain surface area. And they would do other things too. So, so they, could, they convinced people through a process of observation and abstraction and mathematics um, that you could abstract away all this stuff and that you could think of motion or momentum as conserved. And, and the last thing I'll say is at various times, we, so everybody since Parmenides has grasped that something must be conserved. Existence must be preserved. It, it, it's because it, there's nothing else. But then physically, what like specifically must be preserved? Does heat have to be preserved? Does life or a spark of life, a vital force have to be preserved? Does entropy have to be preserved? Like that we have changed our views about and continue to change, right? So with, with, with Einstein, right? Like taking the Maxwell equation and so on with E equals MC squared, we don't even think that the mass is necessarily conserved. Mass and energy can go back and forth to some extent. So even that, right? There isn't a conservation of matter, strictly speaking. There's, but there is a conservation of mass energy in the broadest sense. I got another super chat from Enric uh, saying, back to knowing, quote, an entity in itself. Both Kant and I gather Rand. Sorry, what do you mean by knowing an entity in itself? Uh, well, I'll finish uh, what he's saying. Um, he says both Kant and I gather Rand doesn't view an entity can be known in itself. What is Aristotle's view? Rand would never say an entity can't be known in itself. That in itself language is foreign to her. The in itself language arises in a context for Kant and for the philosophers leading up to him in the previous century. Um, from a context in which they are making a distinction between ideas or impressions we have of a thing and thinking of those as distinct from the thing. Now, Rand does not think consciousness of an, of an object is the object. She's not a kind of naive realist in that sense where your mind, the thought in your mind just is the object. Right? That, that's a crazy view. Um, but she doesn't think that there that there's she doesn't think that when we're conscious of something, what we're conscious of is the consciousness of it. She thinks we're conscious of it. So she doesn't think we perceive impressions of a table. She thinks we perceive a table. And if you want to call that a perception, sure, that's fine, right? But like that, it is not a percept. I don't perceive my perception. I perceive a thing. So she is a direct realist. She thinks. Consciousness, the senses, especially, uh, give us direct access to a thing. They aren't themselves the thing, but they just give us the thing, not, they don't look at themselves looking at the thing, this theater of the mind. So it's only, it's really when you have this theater of the mind or this veil of appearances picture, that you start worrying about, is this the thing in itself? Or is this the thing in appearance? Or is this the thing, um, phenomenally rather than numinally or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And uh, among other sources, definitely uh, Leonard Peikoff's uh, objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand goes into detail uh, in his in the epistemology section. So definitely, I mean, that that made me a cock and eyebrow when when the questioner said Rand doesn't think we can know things in themselves. So if, if I knew that was off, 
I think that that's pretty basic objectivism. Yeah. The, the, and yeah, so some of it is, is her um, form object distinction, um, which is different from Aristotle's form matter distinction, very different. Um, and then some of it is just, or, or you know, I'll, I'll just leave it there. Uh, last thing um, is, um, what about Aristotle? That was the kind of thrust of the question. Um, there is a debate among scholars um, particularly with regard to Aristotle on sense perception and fantasia, which the Latin for the Latin of which is imagination, imaginatio, which we don't quite, which like in the 17th, 18th century, people were using the way Aristotle used fantasia, but we don't use today. So we 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 think of it as just like dreaming stuff up that isn't real. That's something that the imagination is, but the imagination is the sort of ability to form an inner picture, but it's also just the ability to form a picture at all. So it's sort of the capacity for a conscious state, both for sense perception and for what we would call imagining things when they're not in our sense perception, say through memory or daydreaming or, or whatever, or dreaming. Um, and so scholars who talk about Aristotle on sense perception, aesthesis, and imagination, fantasia, um, they debate whether more or less, some of them think he's a direct realist. Some of them think he's an indirect realist, a kind of more like Locke or, or some of these 17th century guys, but the more realist ones where they think that fantasia does kind of is an intermediary sort of between the object. Um, and the I think I tend to favor the direct realist reading of it because I think he does think like we perceive objects, but sometimes when he talks about fantasia, particularly in some of the um, late, particularly in book, the end of book two and book three of um, the, the De Anima, it, it gets a little confusing and it's not, like I'm, I'm some, there are some places, some passages where I'm like, ah, that sounds kind of, that sounds kind of imagist, that sounds kind of indirect realist. So it's not like I think it's a slam dunk case for direct realism, but I do think that's sort of more in keeping with his general outlook and some of the things he says, a lot of the things he says. And uh, we are almost just about out of time, but Roland with 499 euros says, thanks for a very instructive show. My favorite philosophy Friday so far. Well, wow, that's now that's a compliment because we brought some killer content here. Uh, quick uh, compliment from Dink in the chat. He says, I have such respect for Dr. Rines. His lectures on Kant where, okay, that's a typo. You might want to, you know, clean that up. I'm just, I'm just giving you a hard time. His lectures on Kant were the best lectures on Kant that I've heard to date. And I've listened to over 30 different professors and their lecture series. Well, so I wanted you to hear that. And also, do you agree with that? Since we're such truth seekers, would you agree with that, that your lectures were as good as he says? Or is um, that an unfair question? I don't know who he's heard. Hmm. Um, so I had the privilege of studying Kant with Paul Geyer, who I think, and many people think, is the greatest living scholar of Kant. And with Alan Wood, another great figure in studying Kant, Lanier Anderson. Um, and I, would, I don't think that, I, I couldn't hold a candle to them in terms of their knowledge of Kant. Um, 
And so I know of lectures on Kant that were far, far better than mine and better than mine ever could be. Um, uh, Lanier Anderson is a far more dynamic, incredibly charismatic as, uh, speaker and lecturer than I think I ever will be. Um, and, and Paul Geyer just, um, there's a joke that says, um, so there was a philosopher and he died and he went up to, to heaven and he'd been, and he met Immanuel Kant. And he said, oh, you know, I've been, I've, this has bothered, bothered me for 10 years. I wanted to know, like in this passage where you say da 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 da, da what did you mean? And Kant goes, mm, maybe you should go ask Paul Geyer. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's that's it. So I, I um, all three of those professors, I learned so much from, and Rolf Horstmann, I should add, I learned a ton about Kant and then the post-Kantian idealists and, and some, even a little bit from, from Gary Hatfield. I didn't take a class with him, but so I, I, I had the benefit of these teachers. I don't think I know Kant like they know Kant. Um, at least some of them I think are way better, more dynamic speakers than I am. But I am flattered that you thought so highly of my course. I hope I deserve it. And maybe you're right that those 30 things, those 30 lectures that you had were not as good. I, I sincerely hope you're right. Um, and that you know I'm not wrong in misleading you when 30 mm -hmm. other people were giving you better material. And uh, you mentioned a few other scholars for uh, the audience to check out if they're interested in learning more about Kant. And before we forget, uh, among being a philosopher, historian, and professor, you are now also a YouTuber. Uh, we uh, Guys, check out Jason Rines yeah. on YouTube. He's got a channel. He's got mm -hmm. one video already up and another one premiering sometime today. Yeah. So very cool. Check yeah, Jason Rines on YouTube. Should be easy to find. Thank you. And more coming soon. So subscribe, leave a like, and all of that good stuff. Coming up at 7 p.m. UK time today here in just three minutes, it's Finance Friday with Jim Brown on credit creation, good or bad. Then at 8 p.m. UK time, a discussion on Leonard Peikoff's Keeping It Real with James Valiant and Robert Naser. Today's topic is should you have sex after marriage? Wait. I, yeah, I wonder the same thing. Does that mean only after marriage or did they word it um, ambiguously on purpose? Watch and find out. Uh, thanks, Jason. Always a pleasure. Um, talk soon. Thanks, everybody. And goodbye.